Welcome to the CDRB Show, the podcast where you get to know some of the coolest people around. I'm your host, Christian Rodriguez, and each week I sit down with a special guest to chat about their life, career, and all the things that make them awesome. We cover some serious topics that matter, but don't worry, we keep it real and laid back. You never know what kind of insights and surprises you'll get, but one thing's for sure, we're always having a good time. So kick back, relax, and join us for another episode of the CDRB Show. Hello everyone and welcome to the CDRB Show where we invite special guests every week and today I have the pleasure of having here Dr. William Clary. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you, Christian, and many thanks for the invitation. Thank you for accepting. I, I know that we'll have a great talk today. And um, first, I, I want to have some background about you because I my main purpose here in this uh, program is to get to know more the people that comes here. The last time we had uh, President Dunsworth, and I know that he said a lot of things that most of the people probably didn't know. So I want to know about you first. Where were you born? I was born in El Paso, Texas in 1954. I, I can see now uh, probably some of the background of why you have a close relationship with Latinos maybe. And uh, I mean, you're very Latino in my opinion. And You have a great Spanish, and um, so it makes me wonder, how was life like uh, when you were a child? And um, how, how was it like when you were growing up in El Paso, Texas? Well, actually, um, I didn't grow up in El Paso. I was okay. born there, but my family only lived there a short amount of time. Okay. My parents moved subsequently to Connecticut for a couple of years, and then we ended up living uh, in Springfield, Missouri, not oh. too far from here. Mm -hmm. And that's where I grew up. Those were my formative years, Springfield, Missouri. So really not much contact there with uh, Latinos. Mm -hmm. uh, Springfield in the years that I was a young boy yeah. growing up and a teenager was very homogeneous, uh, very, uh, not very much ethnicity, uh, very, very conservative town. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds you maybe if you have a stereotype about the 50s, about what life was like in the United States in the 1950s, yeah. really everything was rigidly... Uh, circumscribed in terms of behavior and expectations mm -hmm. and that's kind of the environment that I grew up in until I went away to college. How were you raised by your parents? What, what were the values that your parents gave you when you were growing <laughs> up? That's a very interesting question. Uh, up until about 1966 when I was 12 years old, uh, I was brought up in a fairly conservative household, very traditional in a lot of ways, but the the changes that were really transformative that be began to be felt in the mid-60s inf influenced uh, my family maybe more than s others. And so um, s the rules changed, mm -hmm. they became less strict, there was more uh, freedom for mm -hmm. me and my brothers and sister to move around and do things. Yeah. Uh, we weren't, uh, There wasn't as much control. I think on the outside in society at large in Springfield in those years, though, 
it was still rigidly conservative uh, all the way up till when I graduated in 1972 from Glendale High School, yes. Hmm. Could you say uh, if you had any struggle when you were like in your childhood, uh, from, uh, last time I was telling this that in Honduras it's not uh, uncommon to have Uh, struggle in your childhood mm -hmm. more mostly in the generation of my parents for example mm -hmm. uh, because uh, my dad for example he had to work since he was in fifth grade to get food for the whole family mm -hmm. so I was wondering did you had any of that struggles maybe not similar but any struggle that you had during your childhood Well, economically, no. My father uh, was a doctor, and we, he made uh, a good salary, so economically, we were fine. I think the the problems or the conflicts, if there were, if we can call them conflicts, at that time were more cultural. Mm -hmm. the the, so the U.S. society was transforming in the late '60s, and that created some, I guess, some friction between. Mm -hmm me and some of the some of the people that I went to school with it wasn't any anything major but you know these were some things that were happening culturally about that time 1968 to 72 what type of cultural well you know there was a group of us that started to grow our hair long you know and we started to protest the Vietnam War you know okay. and and we had different kinds of ideas about Uh, what the United States um, political system should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, that um, came into conflict with some of the more conservative people that I was, you know, around in school. Mm -hmm. I remember being suspended from school in 1970 when the bombing of Cambodia took place. And mm -hmm. there were walkouts all over the United States mm -hmm. uh, at the university level. But at our high school level, five or six of us walked out of school And we were, uh, of course, suspended for that uh, inappropriate behavior. Inappropriate for them, right? For them, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. So using the long hair was a way of protest? Uh, it was time? very symbolic, yeah. It was, um, it was a way of expressing sort of an iconoclastic image, you know, mm -hmm. against the, 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 the values that had brought us to this really a kind of a really polarized point in the United States at that time. I don't, you, you've probably heard of Kent State when students were killed protesting the war. There was a lot of polarization and long hair was kind of a, a way to express that without saying anything. It was a kind of a, it was a sign of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And of course it clashed with, uh, You know, people that were more conservative at that time. And there were people in high school that, you know, my hair was probably, I don't know, among the 10 or 15 guys that had long hair. Mine mm. was the, you know, I was in that group and yeah. I, people would threaten to cut my hair and things like that and threaten to. Oh, really? to, oh yeah, it was, it was strange. Did you have any issue outside of school or was only mainly at school that you had those Mainly issues? at school. That, that's where you, you know, that's where the socialization process was more intense mm. and you ran into people from all over different walks of life. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us about your family right now? How is your family? Do you have children? Yeah, well, my parents are deceased. They both um, passed away in the last 15 years. My sister uh, lives in Concord, Massachusetts. She's a uh, works for a big pharmaceutical company. She's been working for those for years. Mm -hmm. I have a brother in St. Louis that is a math teacher, and I have a brother in Springfield, Missouri, who's a restaurateur, and they're all doing well. My family, 
uh, is fine. I'm married to uh, a woman, Maritzuseda, mm -hmm. from Nicaragua, and we have one son whose name is Kenneth, and he's doing quite well now. He's uh, working in Florida, in Boca Raton, okay. and he's doing really well. He's... Um He's working uh, in what? In what he's working work? as a freight dispatcher for um, Gold Coast Trucking. Okay. And he's actually doing a great job. He's mm -hmm. like leading the office. Oh, and, that's uh, great. Uh, I'm really proud of him. He's made a lot of progress mm -hmm. in the last couple, three or four years. And he's on track and he uh, likes his job a lot and he's doing well and he's... Um, becoming independent almost independent economically mm, which yeah. is a good thing <laughs> now let's talk about your educational background uh -huh. a little bit uh, first I want to ask you this question were you a good student when you were at college um, yeah uh, the first year was a year of adjustment and mm -hmm. I didn't understand the expectations at the University of Missouri which is where I went to school in Columbia, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so I had a little bit of trouble. I didn't have bad grades. You know, I think I had a 2.4 or something. But I didn't understand that to really succeed at the university level, you had to apply yourself. You had to bear mm -hmm. down. You had to do the work. And back then in the 70s, this is early 70s, there mm -hmm. were no supports. There wasn't any support system for students. You could have, I guess I could have contracted or hired a tutor. But yeah. we, didn't, we, we didn't live like that. And we wanted to do it on our own. And some of the classes were quite challenging. You know, I, you, you had to sit down and study a lot to do yeah. well. And by the time I was a junior, yeah, my grades were, were pretty good. I, I was doing okay. What will you say it was the hardest class for you during college? <laughs> uh, I thought, well, I'm not much on science. Uh, I thought geology was difficult. I thought... Um, Psychology was difficult for me. I was a history major, mm -hmm. and I loved history. Uh, on I majored in history, uh, and so that was what I really liked. I, I guess um, I did okay in math, but I, I, I think geology was probably the hardest class I took. One of the ones that I really liked and I didn't think I was going to was ornithology, yeah. the study of birds, and uh, uh, that was a beautiful experience. Yeah. Did you fail any class? No. No? I didn't fail any classes. And uh, how did you find that you wanted to study history as your major? Well, my mother was uh, a historian. She'd gotten her master's at, um, in SMS in Springfield. And she was, um, had grown up in the Canal Zone in Panama. Mm -hmm. So she uh, got her master's there, and then she was doing a Ph.D. at um, Washington University that she didn't finish, but she was doing it in Latin America. She's working on Mexican history. Mm -hmm. So I guess I maybe inherited that love of history, but I think it really developed in, uh, in classes that I took. I had some great professors. Uh, there was a professor I had named William Wysick, mm. who was a constitutional historian, he, amazing professor, and I loved that class. And it just, uh, you know, there's a love for learning that you develop. Uh, as you succeed at it, and that's pr kind of why. And I guess, I guess history, because of my mother, I, I was just always captivated by history. Mm -hmm. yes. um, what are your postgraduate studies? Well, you know, I didn't have a traditional trajectory. I didn't, <laughs> upon graduation, I didn't just jump to grad school like, you know, a lot of people do. Yeah. I had a 10-year hiatus that I dedicated my time to working and traveling. And after I had done that for about 12 years, 
and I'd spent uh, I've probably done 15 to 20 trips to Latin America on my own I decided to go back to uh, graduate school in Spanish in 1985 so after those trips to Latin America, maybe you get you got the motivations to study um, uh, doctors. Uh. Yes, I think absolutely. The 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 um, the well, the the origin of my love for Latin American culture and Spanish is rooted in the experiences that I had when I traveled. Mm -hmm. And the, these were not trips that, you know, that I went on that somebody else put together. These are trips that I put together myself and I realized on my own. Mm -hmm. And I sort of was an autodidact in the sense that I became committed to learning Spanish because I was falling in love with the culture. And so the, 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 the entry point into Latin American culture is the Spanish language. If you don't have that, you can't really uh, work within it. So. I've also, my dad was a linguist. He studied languages as a hobby his whole life, Chinese and Arabic and so forth. And so I guess, you know, I was kind of, I just, it came easy to me. And I liked uh, Spanish and Spanish linguistics and, of course, the culture also. But, yeah, the trips were the linkage, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you learned Spanish by yourself? You never, like, took courses? No, I never took class. I had, a, I mean, a couple of classes in you know junior high that we really didn't re really learn Spanish there was you know it was it was real basic stuff mm -hmm. uh, no I basically learned it on my own but you know that oh. it was sink or swim if you're traveling through rural Latin America on your own you kind of have to you learn Spanish to get along because back yeah. in those days Nobody spoke English. Yeah, it Not was no pretty one. difficult. Very, very few. Maybe just reports. like the high. Yeah, like and I wasn't hanging out with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it took took you to master your Spanish? Because I'm still I working on it. <laughs> I I hear you always speaking Spanish, and for me, I don't have the, the I don't get like the difference between a like person from Latin America oh. and you. Well, that's a compliment I'm not sure that yeah. I really deserve. But, um, you know, it's it took me, before I went back to grad school, I'd been studying Spanish seven or eight years. And, of course, in grad school, you study the, the language much more systematically and formally by studying texts, mm -hmm. analyzing texts. And that requires that your vocabulary improve and expand quite a bit so you know i guess i guess it really came together when i was in graduate school and i, I always feel that like any language is is so big you never really fully learn it it's always yeah. a pro ongoing process it's you know. always evolving yeah. right yes exactly so uh, how would you say you started to feel with spanish during like your first year speaking spanish how confident did you feel or how how was compared to what I have listened now? Because right now you you're very fluent. Well, I just I tried to I tried to to, to I was kind of extroverted, and so I tried to go out and speak to people, and mm. didn't want to get into too uh, um, in depth conversations at, at the start. It was more about mm. talking about basic things. But I listened very carefully. I tried to work on the accent. Tried to help. You know, try to yeah. to to uh, imitate accents was one of the things I like to do a lot. So it's a, it's a process. You know, the first few years, I, I'm sure I didn't speak very well. I don't remember how I spoke. I knew that uh, I was able to communicate fine, but you know, it's. it's and all, nowadays, you still like to imitate accents. Oh, right? it's one of my <laughs> hobbies. Yeah, I love to imitate <laughs> accents. Yes. Talking about hobbies, what do you usually do on your spare time, like out of the university? 
you'll probably think this is you know too stereotypical but i what i do is read right. first of all. i read and dedicate my time to um movies mm -hmm. texts uh i do um you know sometimes i watch a basketball game or baseball mm. game but it's not a big thing of mine um i uh i have gotten into something over the last 25 years which is working in the courts also i do that some uh that presents a linguistic challenge that n is never ending and that's another way to improve your spanish because it's court uh, judicial spanish is very complex and it's very precise and we're supposed to be <laughs> you know machines we're not supposed to make any errors so you want to yeah. try for per perfection uh i still like to travel uh, uh quite a bit i like to exercise mm -hmm. that's another thing yeah i do some cooking you know i ought to buy i, I used to play the guitar a lot and I, i'm, I'm really kind of of a mind where i need to go back and get me a yeah an acoustic guitar to have yeah. that what do you do on a regular weekend, for example, on a normal weekend? Uh, watch a couple of movies, um, read some novels. Sometimes I work on a paper that I'm working on. Uh, one of the things that I've done more recently is uh, <sighs> recommunicated with old friends that I had in the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s and talked to them on the phone some and do a little bit of reliving of the old days and reminding ourselves that we're getting old and that we have to stay in contact with each other because it's good for our mental health yeah. to stay in contact with old friends. I do some of that. I do some long walks uh, in the woods. I like to do that. I like to be alone quite a bit, actually. Yeah, I think But most of people don't don't appreciate a lot loneliness, you know? Yeah. They, yeah. they always think that maybe you need to be with another person mm -hmm. or surrounded by people and... Yeah. I like to, to go walk and go to the trail and sure. just get lost there and just sure. enjoy myself. Exactly. So that's that's like great. That. Yeah. I like that too. So we're discovering a lot of things about you in your personal life, but uh, now I will also like to uh, get to know more about your professional life. And uh, the first thing uh, I want to know uh, is uh, about your job here at the University of the Ozarks. So uh, first, how many years have you been working here at the university? This is my 17th year. I came in uh, the fall of 2006. Okay. Yeah. So uh, y did you start it uh, since that year as professor of Spanish? I came in as assistant professor, okay. yes. Uh, um, previously, I had worked in Missouri at mm -hmm. a women's college, Stevens College, uh, for 11 years. Um, okay. And then I had an interim year that I was on the market, and mm -hmm. I was I taught at Mizzou as a um, visiting professor for one year. I went on the market, and this opportunity presented itself—great opportunity. How did you end knowing about Elsarks and the opportunity to get to work here? Oh, uh, it was listed. Um, you know, um, Chronicle of Higher Education, I think, was the place I found the job listing. Mm -hmm. And I, w I applied for it. Uh, had a lot of experience at a small school that was somewhat similar. Um, Dr. Strain and Dr. Heil uh, interviewed me at MLA in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. in December of 2005. And we had a great conversation. And uh, I, was, I visited campus that spring of 2006. Uh, 
was very, very drawn to the school because of the Walton International Scholars Program. I thought that was the coolest thing imaginable because I, I was, had been working at Stevens for 11 years and we had mm-hmm. a, 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 a very, very, very tiny Latin um, student demographic there. Yeah. It was less than 1%. And, and to come down here and see all these kids from Central America, which is the region that I uh, actually is my specialty, mm-hmm. was just uh, a mind blower. I mean, I, I, the, the kids took me out to eat and we had some great mm-hmm. conversations. Yeah. And it was just a really, really attractive place. And fortunately, I got the offer. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, you have been working here 17 years at the University of the Ozarks. What is the part that you like the most about your job? Well, I like almost all of it. I, I like the size of the institution. I love my colleagues. Uh, I like the atmosphere. I'm in love with my students. Uh, you know, I mean, I just like to be around young people. I like to share some of the things that I know with my students. And... It's just a really um, attractive atmosphere to me. I don't think I, I don't, I don't think I could see myself in an R1 big school. You know, mm-hmm. just doing a lot of research. I like the teaching. Uh, I've been able to have a lot of autonomy here yeah. and create the kinds of classes that I I like to teach and want to teach. And uh, I've been given a, conferred a lot of confidence as to what kind of classes I, I put together and teach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they give give us a lot of freedom in that regard. In in that regard of the classes, mm-hmm. you have created classes for the university from scratch, right? Yeah, Or well, they, well, they grammar classes are already created. I mean, you, yeah. you just teach them. But uh, beyond that, like the Latin American Civilization class, mm-hmm. the Hispanics in the U.S., are classes that, yeah, I've kind of created those the way I, I want to teach them. The Hispanics in the U.S. was my creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Latin American film class is one. That, I mean, th- those classes are taught at most universities, yeah. but I would do it the way I want to, and it's worked out well. Uh, the literature classes are challenging because they take a lot of time to teach, mm-hmm. a lot of preparation, uh, and I'm given total autonomy to create the, cl- the literature classes that I, I think are appropriate. I noticed that you are the only one that teaches that type of classes related to Latin America. So mm-hmm. it makes me wonder what will it happen if after you retire, for example, <laughs> if, well, you, if I, you do retire. Y- there there are soon. plenty of uh, exceptional scholars out there that would love a job like this. I'm not, you know, this is, I don't have any, any stake on, on this, what I do here. There are plenty of really, really good scholars that could probably come in and here and do a better job than me. But yeah, um, you know, I think one of the things I'd like to do here is leave a kind of a legacy. I'm working on the library collection now and um, working for on a big order with mm-hmm. Doug Dan. And uh, that's one of the things I'd like to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have been working here in the university, but on those 17 years here at Ozarks, mm-hmm. that has not been the only uh, position you have held here at the university, right? Well, I've been involved in some some peripheral things, some things that are central, I think, to the university mission and to what we do here. One of them was the Walton Arts and Ideas series, mm-hmm. which I wasn't an official director, but I directed it for three years. And I think during those three years, we did some interesting things. We brought some very interesting guests to campus, mm-hmm. musicians and uh, poets and 
politicians and novelists oh. and people uh, like that. And you know, one of my one of my goals was to try and represent our our uh, Walton uh, Scholars yeah. um, group and brought some central four Central American intellectuals that I consider to be probably the f top four. For the top ten, anyway, and mm -hmm. they came and visited Ozarks. We had a lot of engagement with the students, wow. and I thought that was a good experience. We brought some other people in. I thought that musicians that were interesting, and mm -hmm. um, that. And the, f the president asked me. Uh, I think it was in 2016 to to head up the Walton International Scholars Program. Mm -hmm. And I said, of course, I'll help you out on that. And so I was in that position for two years and brought in two classes uh, that you know. That yeah. That's <laughs> one of the reasons you're here. Yeah. Um, very proud of those classes. Um, proud of the work I did during those two years. There's a lot of work. Yeah. And I, know, I knew it was a temporary um, a, a temporary Position. situation. Yeah, because my real job here is, of course, teaching. And uh, we were looking for someone to take that position. So, so. you always uh, were, were were with the mentality that it was going to be just temporary, not like being there as the director of the scholarship yes, for many years. Yes, that's that really. You know, I understood totally that that wasn't my, really my job. Mm -hmm. That I was an interim director, yeah. and that I that there would be a search conducted, and someone else would come in and take the reins of the program. I totally yeah. understood that. That's the way I knew it had to be. But I did um, really savor and uh, relish the opportunity to gain the experience that I got being the director. It was a lot of work. I learned a lot, yeah. and I thought I. I, I I chose two really good classes of kids that came in that have done, I think every one of them has done exceptionally well. You know, we had a Huri was one of them last year, Vicente Vasquez from Panama, oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, your class, too, has been exceptional. You guys have done really amazing yeah. work. I so. think I, I will always be thankful for <laughs> the opportunity that you opened it, for me. It, it wasn't me. It was the scholarship. It was Sam. and the, he But you chose me. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I've <laughs> always thought that, you know, talent uh, chooses itself. It's not the, the person that chooses. It was what you brought to the table. You know what I'm saying? Thank you. So uh, we will keep talking a little bit about the Walton Scholarship uh, and your director uh, stage on on the university. What is the best part that you remember about being the Walton Scholarship director? Well, uh, uh, I enjoyed the. I enjoyed the trips and the interview process. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work. I mean, it wasn't like you were on vacation. You were there to work, and the next day you got up at four in the morning and went to the next place. So it was, but I enjoyed the interview process. Meeting the parents was mm. fun for me because I was able to talk to them in Spanish. And, yeah, uh, that was fun. Uh, I I I, en I enjoyed uh, orientation the first week when when the students come in and everything's mm -hmm. new to them and you have to explain things. Yeah. I, I particularly remember calling students on the telephone long distance with <laughs> another group of Waltons to inform them that they had received the scholarship. Yeah. That was a beautiful, <laughs> ha uh, just a really, really special moment that yeah. I treasure remembering those you phone know, calls. I, I really appreciate how you did that. Uh -huh. uh, at least in my case, yeah. I still remember how everything was that uh -huh. day. Because I was doing homework in my in my room, uh, 
because uh, I was in some courses mm -hmm. uh, back in Honduras mm -hmm. and I, I was doing some homework there and uh, I received your, your call, mm -hmm. but it was not you, it was Valeria. Ah, uh, Valeria. Valeria yeah, Carias. Oh yeah, sure, and I remember. I remember that she started to ask to me, um, what did I think about our government and in Honduras and uh, what uh, what did I think about the media in Honduras? And I was like, oh, if I say something uh, wrong here, I will not get the scholarship anymore. Right. But I did. Uh, I said the truth. Uh, I said that the media mass media in Honduras is corrupted in some mm -hmm. way with the government mm -hmm. and that the past government was corrupt as well. And they were involved in a lot of things. And um, after that, I remember that Valeria told me, okay, so uh, eat well, eat a lot of Honduran food because you will be here in, in August. And I was <laughs> like, what? Yeah. And I, I screamed and my mom heard all that and mm -hmm. I, I ran to tell her. So yeah. I, I think that was amazing. And then I yeah. talked to you and, uh, and you gave me the, the news as well. So that was really yeah. amazing. You know, you know, another thing, uh, and I, I totally identify with what you were feeling because you weren't really sure when yeah. you were talking to Valeria <laughs> whether you were going to be chosen or not. Yeah. There's a little bit of suspense there. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing that I, I value and appreciate and, you know, just treasure about uh, not necessarily having even been the, the director, but it's just the friendships that I've been able to develop with the kids, the Walton yeah. Scholars, and how close we become, you know, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of respect and there's a little bit of sadness when they leave because I know that's you know I don't probably I'm not going to see them again <laughs> yeah. anytime soon. But that that's a re that's the treasure, the friendships, the exchanges, the the camaraderie, that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, with the good things, there are also bad things. So, uh, what's like the hardest thing that you have to you had to take as a decision, maybe as Walton mm -hmm. director or What's the hardest part of being a Walton director for you? I think the hardest part was the, the, the on the ground during the semester ins and outs of like meetings, regulations, things like that were some, sometimes a little bit difficult. Um, students, you know, uh, sometimes had their own perspective on the scholarship and sometimes proposed changes. And I was, of course, totally unable to, to, to make changes or, you know, that was, wasn't my job. So that side of it and students uh, would come uh, sometimes to me with problems, trying to get visas for parents to come for graduation was sometimes difficult, mm -hmm. uh, making um, plane reservations and, and putting together all the logistics for airport pickup and drop off. All of that was difficult, uh, but it was just part of the job. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't remember anything really negative other than me you know students some students had some personal problems yeah. uh, that that was a little bit hard to deal with at times because I'm not really good at being a counselor I'm I try to be <laughs> yeah I try to be nice but sometimes maybe I can be a little too strict you know yeah um, during your stage as Walton uh -huh. director do you remember any like story or anecdote uh, like funny anecdote from those uh, experiences that you had in every country, one that you can remember? Well, I'm trying to remember here. The, um, I remember a, a uh, an instance in, I believe it was, 
Guatemala where mm -hmm. we had interviewed a student and for some reason uh, her mother or something w after the interview insisted that we go to her house and eat something you know and we mm -hmm. had some time and one of the other directors and I went and she was living in this really poor little place in Guatemala City cooking with firewood and you know and um, just you know it was just really kind of touching you know and I and I felt bad because you know she's doing this all this preparing food for us and stuff and I couldn't guarantee I was going to choose her daughter for the scholarship yeah. because that I can't use that as a criteria you have to go on other things right mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, that's one of the memories. I probably have some more, but they, they're they not rushing into my mind yeah, at this no, point. Um, um, I think well, seeing, seeing some of the ex-students on the visits was, right. was a treasure because, you know, uh, they would show up. Uh, we'd get together and eat at night mm -hmm. sometimes, and some of the students I hadn't seen in five or six years, you know, on these trips, they were yeah. there, and we had to, we got to, you know, renew some things and go over and talk about the old times. Yeah, yeah. I know that we have a director here, Nicole, that um, is uh, the Walton Scholarship Director. But if let's suppose that the position for Walton Director is vacant right now, will you take the role again as Walton Director? I don't think so. Um, I'd like to help the program, but I don't think I'd really want to be director again. Um, it's a lot of work. I know mm -hmm. Nicole's doing a fantastic job. Uh, she's very talented, you know, with the kids and everything, and she she does really fine work. Um, no, I probably wouldn't. I mean, as much as I love the program and support it wholeheartedly, yeah. I think it's a very unique program. I don't think there's anything quite like it in the United States. But being director again, I don't really think that's what I'd like to do at this point in time. Yeah. Um, let's keep talking, but now okay. about the Waltons itself, the scholars, uh, because uh, mm. we have been talking uh, sometimes uh, about uh, some issues that the Walton scholars, we think sometimes that uh, we have here um, after getting to the U.S. and start studying and everything. One of those is like really simple, but um, is the allowance. Uh, right now we get... $125 monthly and uh, I want to ask you because I think this is something that is interesting when you get the answer from someone that uh, is used to use the dollar for daily uh, purchases of uh, or mm -hmm. everything so do you think that's enough for one month for a person for a student uh, it might be for some it may not be for everyone I'm I'd like to know how long that allowance has been stuck at 125. I think it maybe should be adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I, can't, I don't make those decisions. That's basically the foundation. You yeah. know, they, they th maybe a proposal could be made to them to raise it. I don't know. Uh, it's I, I, I just I don't feel comfortable really expressing strong opinions about mm -hmm. that because it's it's it really. You know, $125 is not a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And I know you guys do have expenses outside of your meals and stuff. Yeah, especially during these periods yeah. like spring break or Thanksgiving break, the winter break, things exactly. like that. Exactly. So, there, you know, I can understand the rationale being made for 
an adjustment yeah. uh, uh, upwards in some way of bringing it up a bit. I, you know, I would certainly not be opposed to it. Yeah. Um, and that's in that regard. I think I think you could probably make a case for that. Yeah. Another thing that um, the Walton scholars have struggled maybe in the last couple of years it has been uh, strengthening a lot um, in the sense of talking more with uh, the director for example and it's the transcripts uh, we have been uh, in the past I know that transcripts uh, were given on a case-by-case -case basis if they needed like to keep studying and everything right. now they are enforcing it n not giving the transcripts to anyone after just after four years after you go back to your your home country so uh first i wanted to ask you uh about that what what is your opinion about uh, doing that for the scholars to retain the transcripts well i think it's being done to to try and enforce the four-year return rule mm -hmm. um and you know that's been a, a ironclad rule w inside the the program for yeah. years and years Whether it uh, should be changed, I think, is certainly open to discussion, should be open to discussion. It'd have to go through the foundation. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to get into, you know, my particular opinion on it because it might yeah. be controversial. But <laughs> I think, you know, the objective, the, I do think that the objective of the Walton Scholarship is a little bit stuck in the 80s and mm -hmm. and you know maybe it we need to revisit some of these things or they need to be revisited by those that have the the, the power to change them about you know bringing some things up to date um i do agree that you know if a student is awarded a scholarship to come study here there should be some return <laughs> uh, uh you know policy to make that student go home and and, and yeah help his or her country in a way that's favorable i'm not sure that that's always done are there alternatives to that model could it be done in different ways i think probably yes yeah how that could be implemented i'm not sure i think there has been a little bit of flexibility in now allowing students not to necessarily go back to their home country but to go back to the region yeah. and work i think that's a a, a positive yeah. development but Uh, in terms of, you know, changing the regulations, that may be hard to do, but I think it's a discussion that probably should take place. Mm -hmm. I know you say that you don't want to get controversial, but... <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't no, know. I, I mean, I, I just don't know because yeah. I don't really, you know, when, when people... When the, the foundation has put the scholarship together. They, yeah. they're, they've made this, this beautiful thing possible for so many years. It could have very well been unplugged when the Cold War ended. Yeah. And they had the foresight to keep it going because it's as necessary now as it was in the 80s at its inception. But, you know, as to the regulations, I that's just something that, you know, I think it, they should be discussed, though. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think it's like in, these are never going to change. You know, I think there, there has to be discussions on other possibilities and other options, other Uh, ways to uh, allow students to help their countries. I you think know? you you mentioned a very important event that probably brought the start of the scholarship, the Cold War. Yes. Because um, yes. I have read the the history of the Walton Scholarship mm -hmm. in the website, in the official website. Yeah. Obviously, they they are not going uh, going to say it, but I I read the background and. The, it matches with the dates that they created and the events that were happening in the world. 
Um, the scholarship basically was created to avoid the countries in Central America and Mexico to be part of the communism of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the creation of the scholarship. And I feel that in some ways the scholarship is stuck still in those events or in those like purposes or objectives and I think some things are obsolete maybe because we even live in a more globalized world we we can do uh, a lot of things not being in the country for example we can still help our countries without being in the country and um In my case, for example, uh, because I know that ev every case is different, but in my case that I uh, study communications and I'm related to the media uh, field, I don't think it's necessary for me at least to be in Honduras, for example, because being Honduras and being a journalist or someone involved in the media field is too risky sometimes. If you talk about certain topics, mm -hmm. you can even get killed. Mm -hmm because of that and uh, you can still raise your voice as a journalist outside your country and um, uh, say the bad things that your government in back in Honduras is doing without the risk of being killed because you're saying the truth or something that the government doesn't like to do so I think things like that should be revised maybe uh, from the scholarship because they are stuck in in the 80s you know and I and do. you you I mentioned do. a really uh good event that was the the cold war and that was part of the ignition of the of the program absolutely yeah um i wanted i wanted to ask you also um what will you think if a student uh walton scholar that for example graduated or is about to graduate what will you think if Or what will you say if they want to come back to the United States and work? Even if it's after paying the four years of service that the scholarship gives? I think they have every right to do that. If they're in compliance with the rules of the scholarship, why not? I mean, I, you know, it's um, that's their freedom. That's their agency as a human being. They can, they, uh, they can come work in the United States if they do it, you know, if they acquire the right visa or whatever I, I have no problem at all with that I don't think of just because of the fact you're Walton uh, scholar that you're you you have to be anchored in your country the rest of your life yeah but yeah. will not will not that be against the purpose of the scholarship some might say that uh, but it could you know in the sense what you were just talking about maybe there's a way to help one's country uh, while Without living abroad you yeah. know I mean Uh, it's. I just think that you know, nationalism and allegiance to geographical spaces is is important in, in a lot of ways. But I don't think it's so transcendentally important that it would should hit prohibit somebody that's complied with the regulations to 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 go somewhere else and find them their their dream. You know, yeah. I just don't. Was interesting talking about the um, Walton Scholarship uh -huh. and your um, position as the Walton Director. We're gonna move on uh, because I'm really interested in how your relationship with Latinos and the Latino community is in general. Mm -hmm. So first, I wanted to ask you how many countries in Latin America have have you been to, and what was the last time you visited a Latin American country? 
let's see. I was in uh, Costa Rica, I believe, in 2019. That was the last time. It, the, the, the pandemic put a lot of things on hold. Mm. I've been to every Spanish-speaking country in Latin America except Uruguay. So that's a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. that's pretty much every country in yeah. South America that speaks Spanish, all of Central America, Mexico, and the Caribbean. That's yeah. Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Dominican Republic. Um, I led some. One of the things that we haven't talked about is 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 the trips that I organized here at Ozarks. Yeah. Also, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about uh, that you're married with a Nicaraguan. Yes, yes. How how did you end up marrying with a Nicaraguan? Okay, well, first of all, it wasn't a, you know, something where we met online or anything like that. This yeah. was the 80s, so that in the 80s, uh, as you know, um, I had a, I was going to Central America th two or three times a year. Mm -hmm. I was keeping up with the situation very carefully. Uh, the country that was m really interesting to be in was Nicaragua because there was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. The Sandinistas had totally polarized the country. Uh, there was an ongoing war at the border. The, the people were suffering, but you could still go there and talk to people and get to know the country. Mm -hmm. And I did that, and I met her on one of my trips and liked her. And so I went back and saw her again. Mm. And that happened a few more times. And then eventually, <laughs> a couple of years later, I decided to try and get her visa to come up and visit uh, so she could you know, think about, well, is this a place that I might like to live if mm. I were to marry Bill and this? And so she came here and then it just evolved from there. From where it comes also your closeness to Latino culture and people besides the fact that you're married mm. to a Nicaraguan mm -hmm. woman that probably has mixed your culture with a lot of things like sure, food, sure, uh, sure. everything, everything. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of this goes back to when I was um, living in Columbia, Missouri mm -hmm. at the time uh, before I was a graduate student in Spanish. All of my friends were Latino. Uh, you know, I had we had a group, we used to call it La Cofradia. Hmm. We had a group of friends, and we would hang out all the time, every weekend. There was a couple of guys from Honduras, a guy from El Salvador, a couple of Venezuelans, and, you know, we had a little group. Mm -hmm. We had a little group of people, and we hung out together all the time. And then, of course, in graduate school, of course, a lot of my friends were Latinos then, and then uh, when I came here, it just, you know, it was a continuation. I got married and came here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, when I work in the courts, I see Latinos every day. So I, I can't be friends with anybody that I, <laughs> that I interpret for on the court. That's sort of a, 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 a something that's prohibited. But, you know, I, I have quite a few friends, and some of them don't live here. I talk to them on the phone, and they're in other places, but okay. we've maintained friendships. So, yeah, a lot of my friends are uh, Hispanic. I made a lot of friends, too, when I was... Um, going to conferences, giving mm. papers. I get to know a lot of people in the academy that work in Latin American studies and Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, I still maintain those contacts. Do you used to talk to them, to your friends that you mentioned from Venezuela, mm. El Salvador, Honduras? Did you used to talk to them in Spanish or in English? Always in Spanish. Always yes. in Spanish. That was one of the, uh, one of the ways that I was, I, I kept working on the language all yeah. the time. Yeah, that was back in the late 70s, early 80s, oh, probably, wow. yeah. Um, Latinos, as you know, and you have 
taught this in a lot of uh, yeah. classes, uh, have struggled uh -huh. over the all the history of the United States here in the in the country. Why do you think la Latinos have received all this hate and racism since long time ago, since like the beginning of history of the country itself? Because we have not had an inclusive democracy, uh, really, it didn't even really start until the civil rights movement, I don't think. I mean, there were, I think, you know, as we've studied in our class, uh, mm -hmm. you know, institutional segregation against Mexicans in Arizona and Texas and yeah. California goes way back to the early 20th century. Uh, we've talked, to, you know, we talked about the Puerto Rican experience in the 50s and how they were typecasted and they were stereotyped as being you know, gang people, West, you know, um, West Side Story. Um, it, there's always been a reluctance, I think, because the there is a current, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that this is the only uh, ideological grounding the United States mm -hmm. have, because a lot of, many, many people are, are, are open and they don't, they don't have these feelings, but I think there has been kind of a xenophobic streak uh, to, to immigrants that are, uh, um, Latino and Asian more mm -hmm. so uh, than those from Europe and I think that's you know that's that's one of the reasons there's been a systematic discrimination against Latinos um, it's similar you can find the parallels with the experience of African Americans although mm -hmm. um, the, the the history is a bit different in that regard but yeah yeah do you foresee a positive change for Latinos and how they are involved in the society here in the U.S. for the near future? Yes, the yes, I see. Late future? Uh, absolutely. I, can, I, can, I foresee continuing growth among Latinos in our political system. I don't know whether in my lifetime I see it, but I think I told your class, yeah. in your lifetime we will have a Latino president here in the United States. I'm almost sure of that. Sure of that. Yeah. Uh, I see that political engagement, uh, increased economic success uh, across the board. Um, I think it's I, I, I think it's a an incredibly positive force in in our society today. We need we need um, people from other places, and the Latinos are the logical people. They're close by, and we I embrace uh, immigration, and I think it's ne necessary. But I see yeah I see big things coming. I yes. hope that Latinos get the chance that they deserve oh, yeah. here in yeah. the country. We're getting to the last part of the sure. of the conversation, and the, this part is kind of a dynamic that I want to do each episode and each short phrase answers to different questions sure. that are like uh, easy. Uh, so I'll, I'll start. What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Put on the coffee. Religion? Um, nothing institutional. Morning person or afternoon person or night person? All three. I I'm think best in the morning and um, th read deep deeply in the morning okay. if I, when I have time. Favorite music genre? Um, I like salsa and I like jazz. Favorite artist? I like Ruben Blades a lot because he's a poet. A job you dreamed to have when you were a child? I had no idea. Okay. I just didn't. Ha I didn't have that kind of dream. You I never. Thought, no, I, I never. No, I didn't. Okay. You know, just didn't. TV shows or movies? Movies. What's the last movie you watched? La Ley de Herodes de Luis Estrada. It's a Mexican filmmaker. That's the last one you. Yeah. You saw. Um, 
I want to watch Tar, which just came out, and uh, Women Talking. Cats or dogs? Both. Both. Yes. Do you have that. any? I have a dog. You have a dog? Yes. But you like cats? Too. Oh yes, very much. Uh, and finally, I give you the opportunity to ask me any question that you would like. To. What are you gonna when you graduate? And I know that's a couple months away. That's yeah. a huge experience for you, <laughs> and something I really look forward to. Yeah. What are you gonna take out away from your four years here at Ozarks that you think you'll never forget? That it'll be with you the rest of your life. Oh well, <laughs> I think. I will never forget anything about the four years. Uh -huh. I think, uh, well, I before I got the scholarship, I never imagined myself being here in the U.S. recording a podcast with my professor, which right. is American, and I'm in a university here. So it's incredible for me, I think, to think that I am graduating in a couple of months from a U.S. university and... Uh, I feel that I will never forget anything of this. Uh, it has been an amazing experience that maybe got a little a little uh, disrupted in 2020 because of the pandemic. Because um, I think that if the pandemic didn't exist, uh, probably my experience here uh, will have been different in a lot of ways because all my 2020 year, for example, was weird we i don't even consider it part of my education even if i had like the classes and they were good quality but it was not like the american experience that i wanted uh from from for my education so i think that's the only year that i i think changed a lot of things but uh, i think i will treasure all these moments in my heart and in my mind forever because It has been an uh, experience of a lifetime, sincerely, yeah. Well, we're, we're really, really proud of you, and we're, we're going to miss you a lot when you leave. And we hope you come back and visit someday. Yeah, you know, thank even you. Even if I'm not here, you come back and, you know, you come back and see everybody and, and do some memory stuff. And, yeah. You know, I really hope that I can see you again after graduating. Oh, uh, that, that will happen, I believe. Yeah. I believe it will. Yes. Yeah, I hopefully, uh, because, yeah, I, I'm very thankful with you because of, all the uh, opportunities because yeah you you said that that at the beginning but um you saw something in me too so uh, i think that's uh something i have to be thankful for with you because i remember that night uh in the clarion hotel in oh, Tegucigalpa yeah. absolutely we and uh I, i don't know i from the three directors there you were the one that gave me the, like the cool vibes you know the mm. that you were really cool like friendly and everything mm. so i think you never spoke to me in spanish that time i don't know i could i couldn't do <laughs> I, they didn't let me speak spanish yeah. in those interviews which is fine i mean we had yeah we wanted to hear your english and your yeah. english was very good already and I think one of the things that really impressed you'd already written a novel and you had all the, done all this amazing yeah. stuff. I really liked you. Yeah. yeah, and another thing that I will treasure always is uh, how my English has improved oh, since yeah. I yeah, came absolutely. because before coming to the U.S., I didn't have the time or the opportunity to learn more or to practice more right. my uh, okay. my English uh, speaking with other people. So I think that's another thing that. Hopefully, I will not forget to speak in English uh, after I graduate because mm -hmm. I will be in Honduras back oh. and they uh, 
most of the people don't speak in English there. Right. So, um, but yeah, I think all those uh, are going to be things that I will treasure. So, any final word that you want to say? Well, uh, just uh, thank you for the opportunity to come in and, you know, touch on a few things. Uh, there's always so much to tell and so many things we'd like to talk about. There never seems to be time. Um, yeah. you, life is very short, and, you know, we have to do these sorts of things. And um, these kind of interviews are, I think, important. Uh, I don't know how much longer I'm going to work here. It can't be forever, you yeah. know. And so... I treasure this yeah. kind of experience, and I hope that you know those who are out there listening got maybe got to know me a little bit better than than they uh, they would have otherwise. So, thank you, and thank you everyone that listened to this episode of the CDRB show. I'm Christian Rodriguez, and you can follow us on Instagram at CDRB Productions. There we'll be posting a lot of things, so we'll see you next time. Thank you.